welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. In this week's episode, Tarun and I chat with Noah and Moody from Uniswap. We talk about the history of Uniswap from V1 to V2, the learnings along the way, and how V3 aims to add more flexibility and options for liquidity providers. We touch on SushiSwap, what operating on multiple rollups simultaneously might look like, and more. But before we start in, I want to let you know once again about the upcoming ZK Sessions event happening next week. In this session, we will be looking at DAOs and NFTs and how we may be able to incorporate ZK or privacy into these new systems. I will also be hosting an interactive community discussion about if and how the ZK community could potentially start using some of these tools as well. Event happens on June 23rd, and I've added the link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, Aave. Aave is an open source, decentralized, non-custodial liquidity protocol on Ethereum. With Aave, users can participate as depositors, meaning they can provide liquidity to earn a passive income, or they can act as borrowers to borrow in an over-collateralized way or an under-collateralized way. Think one-block liquidity flash loans. The Aave community has unanimously voted to introduce an Aave Grant DAO to grow the Aave ecosystem. And if anyone's interested in building on Aave or learning more, be sure to go to avegrants.org. We've added the link in the show notes. So thank you again, Ave. Now here is our interview with Noah and Moody from Uniswap. So today, Tarun and I are chatting with Noah and Moody from Uniswap. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thanks for having us, Anna. Yeah, thanks for the invite. So primarily, we're going to be looking at Uniswap v3. But actually, this is the first time I have anyone from Uniswap on the show. And so I think it's worthwhile for us to do like a little bit of backstory about Uniswap. I should say, though, we did last year do an episode about SushiSwap, which I can link to in the show notes where we definitely talked a lot about Uniswap. But yeah, this is the first time I actually get to talk to you guys about it. So let's do that. Let's start. What is the history of Uniswap? Where did this project come from? How did it become what it is today? Sure. Happy to be a, a primary source here. So uh, Uniswap started way back when, uh, before I was even around, actually, with Hayden, of course, really just riffing off of an idea that um, had been sort of floating around in various forms. There's, you know, we want to make sure that we credit the appropriate people. And I think that there, that's been done in Twitter threads and things like that. But, you know, the, the most, I think, relevant motivation for Uniswap was a blog post about automated market makers that Vitalik made on E3 Search, you know, two or three years ago at this point. And Hayden sort of ran with that with a grant from the Ethereum Foundation of about 100K, which I think mostly just paid for an audit um, and maybe some out-of-pocket living expenses while, while, while Hayden was doing the development. And that was how V1 worked. You know, I sort of had read about that after it had launched without having any insider knowledge of the process or, or really anything that had led up to it. And I think that's how most people actually um, who weren't involved in those very, very early days sort of heard about it. They maybe read a blog post and they thought it was some sort of wacky, sort of fun idea. You know, they thought it was like Bancor, right, which had, which was sort of a historical precedent. And, you know, I didn't think too much of it until I actually met Hayden in person at a meetup. And he was, you know, just like someone who you'd expect to have built Uniswap, right? He was super in the weeds, very passionate, really, really excited, um, and just like brimming with ideas of what he wanted to bring to the table next um, and what he wanted Uniswap to become in the future. And so I think I was very, very excited by that. And, you know, that was, that was really, those were, again, the very, very early days. You know, DeFi wasn't even really a term back then, or it was just very, it was in its nascency. And so, you know, I was sort of in, in this circle and, you know, he sort of needed some help, had some ideas about what he wanted to do next. And I thought, you know, this is, this is maybe a great opportunity. So um, along with Cal, who is the sort of design guru and, and, and genius behind the, the sort of user experience of Uniswap. You know, we were the really early team members and we sort of worked on just these really fun early ideas, including Unisocks and of course, V2, which introduced Oracles and uh, Flash Loans and all kinds of things. But, you know, w- without getting too much into the weeds, really, that was the, that was the genesis. Um, it was an Ethereum Foundation grant, um, which transitioned into a Series A, which transitioned into sort of a full, fully fledged company, which is, which is what it is today. And so, um, you know, that's a bit told from my lens, but, but that's, that's how I saw it. What were you doing before Uniswap? You said you were, you were sort of around, but what were you working on? 
Yeah, so I actually started my sort of career, quote unquote, at the New York Fed. So I was doing economics research uh, in preparation for a PhD, which I very quickly realized I wasn't cut out for and so bailed, <laughs> which is the best decision I've ever made. Um, and I, I actually worked with uh, Andy Trollian, who, who was a guest just a couple of weeks ago, I think, on, on your podcast. And yeah, um, yeah we, were, we, were, we were very close friends um, at, a, at a small crypto startup. In, in New York and we had a great, great team. And, um, you know, that just sort of didn't work out for a variety of reasons. And, um, I was, you know, at that time I was sort of going to meetups and, you know, things were a little frothy. So, you know, it was always, it was always sort of fun to see what people were building and, um, try to cut, cut, you know, cut through the, 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 the chaff and find the wheat, um, and, and things like that. That was 2017, That's I guess, right. when you say frothy. Yeah. That's about right. <laughs> but one thing that's funny is I think that, uh, that company has produced a lot of, of founders and, DeFi in the last uh, three months. I, I feel like it's, uh, yeah, it's actually kind of crazy that you guys worked at like probably the best little like DeFi dev incubator that I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> in spite of the fact that, was it called Hydrogen? Hydrogen, d- did it ever launch? I guess you had a token. That's right. Yeah, it was just sort of at this, it was at this sort of awkward in between stage where it was trying to appeal to the sort of open source, what we now call DeFi ethos and um, sort of a more corporate version of, of, you know, a fintech app. And it just never quite hit the right balance, I think. And ultimately, I think there was just, you know, it, it just didn't really work out in that sense. And so um, it is funny, I agree that like, there's, you know, there was this big exodus. And, you know, we've, we've since gone on to some very interesting projects in the space. So cool. All right, Moody, where do you enter this story? At what point did you join Uniswap? Yeah, so I, I joined about, I think, a year after Noah. Uh, Mike was actually trying to recruit me for Rainbow. So he, he invited me to a, a tweet up. And uh, I met Hayden there. And I was also trying to get Hayden to come speak at Google about Uniswap with the blockchain group. Um, so I heard Hayden was hiring uh, at Uniswap, and I kind of forced my way into the office for, for an interview. And uh, yeah, wait, who is Mike in this story? Uh, Mike is the the founder of Rainbow, the the wallet. Okay, and he uh, he he's very social, very very fun guy. Um, so he, he throws these tweet ups in New York with with all these crypto people and all these these Twitter people, which I had never experienced before. So that was a lot of fun. Did he buy your ENS domain? <laughs> Does he have moody.eth? No, I, I actually I front run him on that, so I, I nice. <laughs> but I, he might have some moods now, which I'd, I'd be a little sad about. A, a little, a little background on this, and as, as Mike's entire growth marketing strategy for his startup is to buy both engineers and famous celebrities.eth domain names and squat on them until they <laughs> use his app, which has worked. Whoa. Which is more crazy that he releases it if they use the app. Like MarkCuban.eth, for instance, he bought that and he got Mark Cuban to use his app. And now wow. Mark Cuban's an investor in his app. Amazing. Well, it's genius. It's supply side and demand side too, right? Because he's got the celebs who have the clout and then he's got the devs who are like, well, this is wow. what is this, you know? And then they get hooked. Amazing. That's so good. Moody, what were you doing before? What were you doing before this meeting? Yeah, I was at Google doing uh, privacy and ads. And sort of in the meantime, I was like studying crypto and I have no idea how Mike found me. I had like 30 Twitter followers. And, and yeah, he's just, he's a good scout, I guess. Um, I had been going to like hackathons, like ETH New York, uh, ETH Denver, ETH Waterloo, and just... Getting to know people. Yeah, building a bunch of silly projects, like I'd say. Cool. We have now your two start dates. So 2017 was Noah? 2018, 2017? I think 2018 was the official date, I believe, but... Okay. Something, something around then. And... 2019, I guess, was Moody. Well, I think I, yeah, I started a year ago, so 2020. Okay, 2020. Yeah. Got it. Let's, let's kind of go back to the story of Uniswap. We've done V1, that very kind of simple mechanism, this, this idea that had been or- originally proposed by Vitalik and maybe also by Martin. We had Martin from Gnosis on the show recently, and I think it was like a conversation between them. Um, what happened after that? Like, let's let's continue through that story of this this company and this product. Well, and if I'm being honest, we spent four weeks, uh, four weeks, four months building Unisox. Um, and that's oh, really? Exactly what oh, happened. that's what you yeah. did. Okay, you so we you literally left the paused Unisox. everything <laughs> and built Unisox. 
Um, which, you know, I'm, look, I'm sort of somewhat self-trained as an engineer. I don't have a CS degree. And, you know, I had been working on smart contracts almost exclusively. And um, I get hired by Hayden. And the first thing he's like, hey, what if we build some sort of like web UI to interact with, you know, these tokenized socks on Uniswap V1? And I was like, well, sure. I don't really, I haven't done that before, but that seems fine. We built this whole redemption scheme. And, you know, for those of you who don't know Unisocks, if you don't know Unisocks, you know, you're probably not listening to the show, but, um, you know, we, we tokenized 500 socks um, and put them in a Unisoc pool and, and let them be bought and sold freely. And, you know, you could redeem them on our website for, for an actual physical pair of socks, which we are still to this day safeguarding in the Uniswap office. So Whoa. it was it was a lot of fun. It was actually great because it really showed people what Uniswap could do. And those are the kind of things that Hayden saw in his head. Um, but needed to actually bring into reality for others to be able to buy into to what, you know, to that essence of what Uniswap made Uniswap interesting to him. Unisocks, this is like, were they NFTs? Were they the 721s kind of NFTs? Sort of. So there, there's there's an NFT element to Unisocks, but the really the core Unisock is it's just an ERC-20 contract of, with a total supply of 500. And so they're fully fractionalizable. I see. And, you know, it just takes one full you know, denomination of a Unisock to, to redeem it for for an actual sock uh, to, you know, a pair, of course, a left and a right. Uh, but, oh, yeah. <laughs> but once you once you've redeemed your ERC-20, which is fully freely tradable, you do get, in addition to the physical socks, a, a, a non-physical, non-fungible NFT token. And so those exist as well. And they, they're exactly corresponding to how many NFT socks have been sort of burned. What was the connection, though? Like, it sounds like a super fun project, and I get it's good for branding and stuff, but like, could you use these in Uniswap as it stood? Were you able to actually like trade your, I guess if they're ERC 20s, you could. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, you know, the sort of algorithm pricing was what was very, very interesting to us about about this experiment. And I mean, they're the most valuable pair of socks I think ever created, which is sort of just a funny little meme. And, you know, it really just, I think it, it, it showed both the sort of mass market appeal that Uniswap could have while demonstrating the underlying mechanism in an extremely simple way. Um, and also, you know, frankly, touching on some of the pain points of, of that, you know, first V1 design. And, you know, we've seen, I guess we'll get there to V3, but, you know, there's this capital efficiency that V3 brings to the table. Um, and we just didn't have that in, in V1. And what we did is we actually had to lock up a bunch of ETH alongside our socks to sort of, um, seed this liquidity pool, you know, to, to sort of support trading it. And so there's, there's, there's very interesting tie-ins to Unisocks that, that go much deeper than sort of like a, a one-off little project. Very cool. Was this still with V1? Was this still like being built in tandem with V1? Well, this was post V1 launch. And so we were, it was just, we were using the Viper contracts. Um, it was sort of, we were still, V2 is in, you know, in sort of ideation phase and we were just sort of riffing on, on, on some fun things. Cool. So when was V2 and what did it do? So V2 was about a year after that. Um, so I think, you know, late 2019, maybe um, early 2020. And the big, there were three big ideas. The first was Oracle's. The second was uh, non-ETH specific pools. And the third was flash loans. So Uniswap V1 worked only with ETH. So uh, V2 opened up the floodgates and allowed any, any token to be paired with any other, which is you know sort of incredible to think about because that's just taken for for granted these days right yeah um but yeah that that was that was a that was one sort of high level feature um oracles which are which are very interesting to me i think still underexplored in, in the defi and and broader crypto ecosystem um introduced a way to sort of trustlessly and with certain known risk parameters, um, obtain the price of assets that are trading over Uniswap, um, which can be used as a primitive to, to, to input, you know, values and data into other systems which rely on, on on these, you know, relative prices. And then the third, of course, is flash loans, which uh, doesn't always have the best reputation, but but flash loans are this feature that Uniswap V2 pools have where, where you know, you can come to the table and say, uh, I'd like to borrow all of your assets, you know, Uniswap pool, and then I'll return them, you know, in the same block. So it's totally safe for you. But, um, you know, don't, don't worry about what I'm doing with them. And, and basically, you know, that, that can be used for sort of ill effect if the, the people borrowing the assets are willing to do something sort of un, unsavory. But um, I think there's a really positive narrative to flash loans. And the reason why we introduced it really is because it allows uh, no capital arbitrage. And so really, Uniswap is about democratizing trading and finance and LPing. And so um, I think being able to arbitrage, you know, without any upfront investment is, is extremely powerful. And basically how that works, just post-it note version, is um, you borrow a bunch of assets that are relatively overvalued from Uniswap. You sell them on an external, you know, venue. It doesn't have to be off-chain. On-chain, it could be off-chain. Um, and then you you return the now correctly appropriately priced assets. You know, that process is n- normally only available to sort of professional market makers, but this flash loan feature made it available to, to everyday people. Which which flash loan came first, Aves or 
uh, Uniswap. I think, Ave, we certainly didn't originate the idea. I can't, we can't claim credit for that, okay. but it does work quite nicely within the Uniswap <laughs> ecosystem of, of, you know, like making a swap and sort of simultaneously returning assets and things like that. I think the, the flash swap, was that originally from Uniswap? The flash swap, yes, that's, that's sort of our coinage of it. Um, and yeah, I think that was a, that was a novel thing because, you know, with Ave, it's, I think it's, you know, exclusively single asset, but, but Uniswap has this interesting dual asset property where, yeah, you can flash swap optimistically and, and receive your output before you're actually required to pay your input. Hmm. Were there like these LP tokens on V1 and V2? Or was that sort of an introduction with V2? Yes, the, L- the LP tokens were existed on both. And they, they are, okay. yes, they were just a, you know, a way to track um, relative asset values. And so, you know, we needed that for accounting purposes. Got it. So Moody, you were joining 2020. Was V2 already out? I think, I think we're about a month out uh, from V2 launch or a month before V2 launch when I joined. A lot of the first work I did was just like getting into the interface and modernizing the code base. I did a lot of conversion to TypeScript in the early days and some unit testing. And yeah, just building, I actually wrote the first naive routing algorithm, which is still unfortunately a little naive in the interface uh, for for the V2 swap, um, since we had not just ETH pairs, but we also had token-token pairs. So it got a little bit more complicated than V1. Cool. Okay, so I think we've set it up nicely to start talking about V3, which just hit mainnet on May 5th, a month ago, I guess. So this is pretty fresh. I'm excited to actually dig in on this. You know, V2 was out. At what point did you start planning for this V3? And what were kind of the initial kind of challenges or things that you wanted to fix with this new version, things you wanted to change? Right. Well, Moody, maybe you can speak to the, the technical aspect, but I think just to tie this back to Unisox, I think something that's pretty illustrative to people is basically what we wanted to do is, is to say, you know, we wanted to support a Unisox style token issuance uh, without having to lock up this ETH that we knew is never going to be sold below the, the starting price of Sox, right? Because we control the total supply, we have this guarantee that um, there, there's sort of a floor price, a reserve price for Sox, and that they're only going to be sold on the way up. And so, um, you know, Uniswap, V1 and V2 just didn't allow that kind of use case because they were constraining liquidity providers to a single shared position, which was, you know, behaved exactly identically economically in terms of risk, in terms of um, required capital, in terms of fees earned. And so the over, you know, the underlying motivation of V3 is to introduce a level of flexibility in LPing and allow users to customize their risk preferences and then their expectations over future prices. And so that's really the core idea and innovation. We can get into how that that works, but that that's what that's what it is doing. And I think the motivation for this really began much much earlier on than V three at all. But V three specifically began to form as an as a, as a coherent idea and um, as something that could actually be implemented, basically right after V two, unfortunately. And so we didn't have too too much of a rest period uh, after V two launch, but. You know, that was when sort of Dan Robinson from Paradigm began to really flesh out the math here and 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 figure out that this could this could work. And Hayden sort of began pushing and and prodding and seeing, you know, what what strings could we pull together? How, you know, how could we start staffing this? Things like that. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about like what did happen under the hood? What changed? Feels like it's pretty major. Well, yeah, for, from a technical perspective, uh, you don't just have like these two token balances from which you can determine everything. You now have to have this price curve broken down into these things we call ticks. So like all the different uh, discrete prices are sort of like bucketed into these ranges for which there's different amounts of liquidity that are staked and supporting trades in those ranges. And this like timing wise for this, I'm trying to picture like a lot of this work was happening, I guess, before SushiSwap even was on the map. Right. It was certainly in the works, um, but before that, yes, and and frankly, we were sort of not focused too too much on on V two because we felt that the core reasons why V two had come about were, were were sort of thriving and and it was its own self sufficient system, and we we had sort of bigger plans for what we wanted to work on next. I am curious now, though, like what happened the day that SushiSwap emerged in the company? <laughs> How were you guys feeling? What happened? Was there like a what the hell moment? Like the Music executives in 1999 when they discovered Napster or what? It was, you know, I mean, I think that we, you know, there were mixed feelings because we felt that, you know, Uniswap was an important thing to exist. And so we were happy in some sense, that, right, that, you know, the code was being put to good use. And, you know, we open sourced Uniswap for a reason, right? And we, we, we have GPL code for a reason. And so, you know, from that perspective, we didn't, you know, 
we didn't sort of really, I think, notice <laughs> too much until, you know, until the numbers started cranking up. And, um, you know, ultimately, we were actually quite busy. And so we sort of didn't want to devote any time to this, what sort of felt like a distraction. Um, yeah. You know, th- there's an important element um, at play here, which is right, that like in an unpermissioned, fully sort of adversarial ecosystem, you know, anything can happen at any time. And so I think we we, we did react as a company, right? And we, we sort of had to, you know, adjust our expectations about, um, about what people wanted from Uniswap or from something like Uniswap. And I think it actually taught us a lot about, you know, the community and, and there these, these really important, like foundational, you know, things at play here, like, you know, venture capital versus crowdfunding versus um, governance. And, you know, all, all of these things are, are very core to what crypto and, and, and what it means to build a crypto company is. And so I think that basically it, it taught us a lot and it forced us to introspect a bit more about why we're building Uniswap and what we want Uniswap to mean to different groups of people. And so I actually think from that perspective, and I, you know, I don't want to go into really details here. You know, I think the history is sort of, you can, you can look up what happened and all that. But I think, I think what we took away from it is we need to be intentional and involved and engaged and, and, you know, just make sure that we're building things that people feel involved and engaged in. That's what I got from that experience. Cool. If you do, if you're interested in the details, I would say there definitely was a reprioritization under the hood. Um, (laughs) When, when sushi sort of got big and gained a lot of traction, we we sort of shifted our engineering team just a little bit, I think, towards like governance and community work. Did the uh, like so? I'm just thinking all of this history is on the way to the launch of V3, but was originally the plan to actually include because there was the airdrop that happened in September. But I'm curious, like, was the idea originally include the token in V3 and then that was moved up? Or was there always a plan for tokens or was that something that actually everyone was like, oh, yes, we should? Because like from the outside, it wasn't completely clear. There had always been sort of the no token ethos, right? It was actually always cited as the example of the project that doesn't have a token. Actually, the episode that we did, we did this three-part series on SushiSwap. And in it, we did the whole episode the day before you launched the token so, so then we had to record sort of a third part because it changed the entire narrative in a way once you guys had, had dropped one too. So yeah, I, I want to hear a little bit about that. Like, was that always in the works? Was it sort of pushed up? Yeah, I'm really curious what was happening. Yeah, well, I can't say too much. And I, I, you know, I don't want to speak for, for Hayden and this sort of official company position. I think it certainly moved the timeline up. I think that there was always, you know, we always had the V2 fee switch Right, which which was known to, to people. And I think we were pretty transparent about what that did and you know who was going to control it. You know, we never wanted to sort of have this as a company. Um, we just felt at the time of launching V2, we weren't ready to, you know, concretize what it meant to, you know, sort of govern, you know, this aspect of Uniswap. And so um, we sort of punted a bit, right? And I think, you know, I obviously it's hard to replay things, right? But I think, yeah, in retrospect, if if sushi hadn't gained the sort of traction that it did, I think we certainly would have been a bit more thoughtful, not not thoughtful about what we wanted to do, but thoughtful about the the timeline and the the way that we prioritize from an engineering perspective, um, the launch of you know, what what is now governance, right, and, and the uni token. And so um, we, we, we potentially could have coincided that with the V3 launch or, or just done things in a, in a slightly less frenzied uh, timeline from, from, from an engineering perspective, right? There's a lot of, a lot of code to get written when, when you're launching these kinds of things and a lot of tests to be written. I think that we, we don't feel that we've sort of betrayed anything fundamental about Uniswap by launching a token. You know, there is this no token narrative. And I think that like the, the original meme was that, you know, hate Uniswap was just Bancor without BNT. L- little do people know it's, it's actually, it was much better and more cash efficient, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, no one sees Uni is like an intermediary, like routing asset for for the protocol. The protocol is self-sufficient. It, it stands on its own. I think that there is this interesting conversation to be had about um, the meta level of governance where, you know, you're thinking about incentives and incentive alignment and, and moats. And there's a point at which liquidity providers need to coalesce around projects and, and sort of think about not just current profits, but, you know, future profits. And I think that there's a really interesting angle where multiple sort of fragmentation across multiple DEXs creates um, exponentially many arbitrage opportunities, which, you know, furthers MEV. And I think that, you know, ultimately there there have to be both incentives to build and have stable ground upon which to, to feel that you can um, invest and, and, and write, you know, integrations for. And so I think that the, the token is tied into all of these sort of areas and very intricate delicate, interesting ways. And so I think that we see it as this like meta incentivization governance layer for a core protocol, which ultimately is agnostic to, to this, to this layer. Got it. 
Let's go into the price curve ticks, the ranges. There's a few kind of words that are used in the new documentation that I actually don't know. For example, like ranged liquidity. I actually don't know what that means. So maybe you can start to break this down a little bit for me. What are these doing maybe on the, on the user level? What, do, what would I see if I'm using this now? Uh, so in Uniswap V1 and V2, uh, when you provide liquidity, your tokens can be bought and sold at any price. So let's say it's Ether in US dollars. You, you're providing liquidity and anyone can buy or sell Ether in US dollars in the pool, whether the price of Ether is $1 or you know a million dollars. So you don't have any control over where your liquidity is actually used. Whereas in Uniswap V3, you can restrict the range of prices where your liquidity is actually used and not worry about providing any capital for liquidity outside that price range. Um, so let's say you only think that Ether is going to be between the prices of $2,003. You can provide liquidity in that price range and get a greater capital efficiency, get a greater portion of the fees that are earned in that price range. It starts to sound a bit more like an order book model then, like where you'd actually say, you know, I'm, I'm ready to sell at this price and you're ready to buy at that price and then you match it but you're still an AMM, right? So what, what is this? How would you describe this, this combination? Yeah, I, I would say one of the core differentiators is that once someone like takes your order, it doesn't go away. So they can always just take the other, the other side of the order. So if they buy something, they can sell it right back to you as long as you don't like remove your liquidity. Um, so you're, you're still participating in market making. You're, you're still buying and selling this like spread, but you can limit the range within which you do it. And, and if you, if you do limit it enough, like it is kind of like an order book where like, if you just limit it within, you know, 0.00001%, which is smaller than you can do in V3, but like theoretically, then it is kind of like a limit order taken to the extreme. But, but there's still that, that case where like, if somebody takes that limit order, they can just like go in the other direction and give it right back to you. As long as you don't remove your liquidity. Are there some like benefits like so I think you can kind of imagine why this would be useful to people that like you have a bit more control. I'm kind of curious though what does that look like? Does it sort of say also that you'd receive a different percentage if you did a different price range? Like do you does that affect actually how you earn the fees? It does. So just just very quickly, I mean, in Uniswap it was very easy to think about LPing because you just provided 50-50 value, right? And so you you just provide equal amounts of both assets, essentially. In V3, that's that's no longer the case. And you can actually take fully asymmetric positions. You know, in the limit, actually, as Moody mentioned, you know, that becomes a limit order. Um, and so you can come to the table with, you know, differing amounts of assets. And, and, and in addition to that sort of location parameter, which is, you know, where on, you know, the price curve, whether you're providing you know, from prices that are between the current price and, and higher prices or the current price and lower prices, there's also sort of a scale parameter, right? And so you can choose your location and your scale. And the scale is what determines the sort of risk and concentration of uh, of liquidity. And so the tighter your range, right, the smaller price movement is required for your range to be exited. And right, that corresponds to a higher risk of, you know, what some people call permanent loss or, um, you know, inventory risk or, or, or what have you. And so, there's there's two sort of elements at play here, location and scale. And so I think that they both can affect fees differently. But but essentially you're only earning liquidity provider fees, you know, for as long as your liquidity is actually, you know, supporting trades. And so that only happens when you're when the price is actually inside of your your specified range. Was the goal of introducing this partly to like mitigate impermanent loss, or as we defined on previous episodes like opportunity cost was that something you were trying to do in creating these different ranges where like you could either expose yourself to more or if you go i guess wider less i I would say it allows liquidity providers to like specify their risk preference like their, their preference for impermanent loss so like if you have a higher tolerance for it then you might choose a more concentrated range um because you'll be earning more fees with the same amount of capital and if you have a lower tolerance for it, then you might do something like Uniswap V1 and V2, where uh, you, you don't ever want to sell one asset at too low a price. So you, you provide liquidity across a much wider range. Hmm. And actually, yeah, can you still use it as, as you did with L1? Like, can you still set the setting so that you're, like, if you're just really used to the way it was, can you still do that? Yeah. So if you provide liquidity across the entire price range, then... V3 is more or less equivalent to V1 and V2. 
With the caveat that the gas characteristics are, are slightly different. And maybe what the LP tokens look like are slightly different too, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, v- V3 also uh, uses NFTs. And then there's one more caveat that uh, v- V3 doesn't automatically reinvest uh, your fees, which, you know, some people might think huh. is a is a bad thing. Uh, I think it's kind of a preference thing because I, I actually like that V3 doesn't reinvest my fees because because then my fees aren't subject to impermanent loss. Hmm. Before it was an optional to do that, I guess. Yeah, before the LP tokens had this automatically reinvesting property where you're actually accruing pro rata shares of, of liquidity and not not underlying tokens. Yeah. Well, I guess one one other thing is like, how do you view kind of the landscape of protocols that build on top that will be kind of rebalancing for people, right? It seems like <clears throat> based on at least sort of what it seems like sentiment is, is people kind of want these sort of passive investing vehicles that will like go and reallocate to pools. Do you, do you envision a world where the original Uniswap team is, is maintaining things like that? Or do you envision a world where there's like 500 different kind of strategies, each focused on a different subset of the market? And, and kind of how, how do you think about that? Because right the, at the end of the day, I think there's still going to be demand for passive investing vehicles. And, you know, there's only a certain subset of the market that can actually be active in managing all this liquidity. I think some of us have different opinions on how much Uniswap should be involved in in that particular domain. My opinion is that it's like a very opinionated subject, like how you how you deal with reinvesting these fees and how you how often you should adjust your liquidity ranges and how aggressive they should be in terms of tightness or concentration. And because it's so opinionated, there's going to be many different implementations and people will have different preferences and sometimes one will perform better than the other. And then other times, others will perform better. I, I think Uniswap should take a role. And this is just my personal opinion. I think Uniswap should take a role of enabling all these different strategies to exist, these automated passive strategies and like building all the right tooling for them so that it's easy to make those. Um, but like building an actual automated strategy, I, I think we should leave up to the integrators. Would you expect there to be additional products that live on top that actually articulate one of these, not just the individual liquidity providers who they themselves are playing a special strategy, but like actually products that play that strategy for you. Or does that already exist actually? Yeah. I mean, I think people are, are thinking about this exact problem and, and you know, the, the, the really great news from my perspective is that we don't have to worry about it. I mean, not to say that Uniswap doesn't want. <laughs> oh, you guys! Right. Don't I mean, have not to, to say that Uniswap doesn't want okay. to productize this or, or, or think about it. Um, we do, and I think you know we want to support people and, and and build tooling that that enables this. But like ultimately, you know, it's not. We don't have to be a monolith, right? And you know, we we can be. We could sort of pursue that traditional sort of growth path and sort of try to try to offer um, you know a whole range of products that appeal to you know investors and traders and, and basically the whole gamut of, of people that use Uniswap. But the really beautiful thing about open source and DeFi is that we. Um, we can sort of put things out there and then um, work on a very high level with other teams whose relative expertise might be, uh, you know, a bit more suited t- towards, you know, these these automated strategies. And and we can give them the tools they need to make decisions on behalf of their users, right? And I think that's what is extremely interesting and powerful about building in crypto in general. And I think that, you know, that's not to say, again, that, that Uniswap isn't interested in this or that we won't ever, you know, come out with some kind of product that does this, right? But I think what we can say definitively is that, our like raison d'etre is to let people who do have opinions and who do want to see very specific strategies implemented and give people the opportunity to invest in those or um, or hedge hedge their positions or, or or what have you. We want to let them do that, and so that that's that's powerful. As you describe it, and you describe these different strategies, for me, it sounds more and more like a game that like people have been playing a game that's quite easy, and then some people, often those with like a lot of funds, can play it well, but they don't have to put very much energy. And now there's like all these different new ways to play this thing. And even if you don't necessarily come from one of the more legacy groups, you could potentially also play this game so well that you maximize it. Is that is that actually the case? Or is because that's what it sounds like. Or do you think it's still sort of like really hard for the little guy to like truly participate in this? No, no, I, I still think that Uniswap can be a, you know, a medium for passive, you know, passive quote unquote investment. That's the primary sort of motivation. Um, I don't think that the existence of the ability 
to potentially, you know, earn outsize, you know, APY by being active is at all a fault or a failing in the Uniswap's core model. I think that, you know, those positions are almost inherently taking on more economic risk. And so, you know, being compensated for that isn't bad, I think. And, and you know, it potentially might even net out in, in the long run, right, as we see these strategies, you know, rise and fall and win and lose. And I think that the, the important thing to note here, too, is that, you know, uh, traders really win in these scenarios. Like when people are sort of playing games, and I wouldn't, I don't think games is an inaccurate characterization, right? Like when you decide to sort of make a big bet on what you think is going to happen in, in, in a pool um, and that doesn't go too well for you, right? Like, you know, that impermanent loss is sort of translated into great prices for traders too. So it's like, you know, we, we it's, you know, we're not like trying to distribute, you know, loss from, you know, LPs to users or anything like that. But I think that like the net outcome of this, we're hoping obviously is positive. And I think that so far the early results seem promising. And I think that it's a very interesting, very multifaceted, complex, you know, system. And I think that we're, you know, we've set up the rules of the game in a very abstract sort of generic way, having built V3. And I think that we're going to start to see very diverse strategies um, on top of that. And I think that passive LPing, either meaning just like single sort of range, just set it and forget it style, or participating in sort of an index fund that, you know, that has some sort of automated rebalancing associated with it, it is still going to be a valid use case. One kind of other big change uh, was the licensing in NV3. And as as someone forked it and put it on BSC at this weekend or Friday, I guess. Ooh. How do you view kind of the future of, of licensing? You know, I think the interesting thing, of course, from a governance standpoint has been uh, this kind of snapshot vote on allowing Arbitrum to kind of have usage within the license, at least relative to the team's deployment. So maybe from the development standpoint, how do you guys think about the license and how does it either impact features you want to make or things you want to do? And and, and what was sort of the thought process behind it? Sure. Yeah. So, so just, you know, on a high level, the V3 code base is, um, was issued under a business source license, which was something that was developed by, by uh, Maria DB. Um, and basically what this license is, is it's a, and it's a time locked GPL, right? So uh, it, it devolves to GPL after about, you know, after two years, which is specified in the original contract. And before then, um, it's, it's more or less restricted to people who both, uh, who either Uniswap Labs, you know, the company or Uniswap Governance specify, right? And so, so it has this um, exemption clause by which um, governance is able to make exceptions to the license. But, you know, by default, any sort of commercial use of the code is is prohibited within that time frame. So that's that's the statement of what the license is. But you just sort of said that recently there was like a governance decision to actually open that up. Is that how people can use it? So what happened with Arbitrum is there was some community interest in deploying to Arbitrum. There was a thread on the governance forum and then they created a snapshot proposal. And because it reached the threshold of 40 million votes, which is what's required to get an on-chain proposal passed, we figured we'd just make it easier and, and deploy to Arbitrum for the community um, since the community signals strong support. And so uh, say say that Uniswap, Uniswap Labs, the company, decided that they didn't want to deploy to Arbitrum. What the community could do is update a reference, which the license points to, to include a carve-out for uh, off-chain labs or an Arbitrum deployment. And then anyone could just go ahead and deploy the Uniswap code to Arbitrum. Hmm. So they could kind of go around the will of the company if, like, through this governance mechanism. This is due to the license, the exact way it's described. Yep. The technicalities of it is that the license actually points to an ENS name, which can resolve to a file containing additional clauses to be appended to the license. There's one more thing which isn't relevant. It also has another ENS name reference, which points to the date at which the code becomes GPL. So you can override the date so that all the code becomes GPL on a faster timeline. But then what happened with Binance? With the B, with the... No, BSC, Binance Smart Chain. Uh, basically, someone just forked it and put it, put it up. Yeah, what does that mean, though? Like, if somebody just forks it and puts it on BSC, what happens? Lawsuits if you find them. Uh, <laughs> I see. Okay, okay. So like there is basically now the community does have something to protect themselves, maybe, but it is open source. Like, yeah. So like, where are you guys sitting on that? Well, I mean, the community has this license to the code so the community can enforce it if it wishes to. Uniswap Labs also has copyright 
And I think as far as like what we'll actually do, I think that's not, <laughs> that's not really up to the two of us. It's sort of a team <laughs> conversation, but, but yeah, I think from my perspective, the license isn't necessarily about enforcement. It's about legitimacy and it's hard to rally a community around sort of an illegitimate illegal project, which is not respecting the copyright mm. or the attribution of like the work that it's using. So um, I'm not as worried about like the community rallying about like, you know, like hiring lawyers or something, but I think it'll work out just, just because, you know, they're not playing a fair game. Let's touch base on the NFTs as, or LPs as NFTs, because you mentioned that before. How does that actually, what does that look like? What are these things? And maybe what were they before? What were LP tokens originally and what are they now? Yeah, so LP tokens originally were ERC-20s, which meant they were fungible. So if you have one LP token, I have one LP token, we can swap them. And as long as it's for the same pair, like they're, they're completely equal in value. Uh, but with V3, because fees aren't automatically reinvested, one, one user's liquidity position isn't necessarily fungible with someone else's, even if it's the same tick range, even if it's the same starting capital, because you also are entitled to these fees. As much as we like wanted to make liquidity fungible for all, for all the benefits it has, like being able to deposit into something like Compound and borrow against it, it was just very difficult from a technical perspective to, to make that happen. Um, so like the, the easiest thing to do was to make them non-fungible. So that means when you create, when you provide liquidity to uh, Uniswap V3, what you get back is this non-fungible token, which represents your position and the parameters of your position. So what is the price range and which you provided liquidity? How much liquidity did you provide? Yeah. But worth like given that there was a lot of projects that use the old LP model, like what does the new NFT model do with those? And I, I have an example here, like Maker using Uni Pool LPs as collateral. Yeah, Maker Maker was a little sad when we told them oh. um, because they had just you know because their their governance system is you know it's a bit more conservative, it's a bit slower, right? And they had just. Before we announced V3, they had just gotten around to like, you know, starting to, to get V2 pool tokens into their system. But, um, it's okay. We're, we're, we're still super excited about the long term of that general phenomenon. It, it basically just makes it a bit harder, right? It adds sort of a speed bump. You know, ultimately there's nothing preventing a, a team maker, you know, swap someone else from, you know, choosing a method of making LP tokens fungible. Um, basically the, the core problem is right, more or less um, dealing with fees, which are collected asymmetrically as Moody mentioned. And so, you know, if, if you're willing to sort of commit to a strategy for um, reinvesting these fees, you, you can actually make certain positions fungible. And I think that this is particularly interesting and relevant in the context of um, PSM and not to, not to like get too sidetracked, but yeah, it's basically this like uh, program that Maker has um, dumped a bunch of collateral into that lets you swap between DAI and USDC. And, you know, it's a pretty powerful sort of backstop for um, for these trades. And I think that there's a really interesting, you know, re-parameterization of that system that could happen on V3. Um, and I think that a tightly concentrated V3 position um, in DAI USDC around the price of one could, I think, serve a lot of the same purposes as the as the PSM does, right? And so I think that there's, you know, there's that. And then there's the, the, the whole, again, universe of possible ways of fungibilizing ultimately non-fungible positions by by sort of being opinionated about a fee reinvestment strategy. You know? So I think that as people start to see needs for, um, you know, borrowing against LP tokens, supporting things like the PSM, we're going to see strategies evolve and develop. Um, it's a bit early to say, you know, who's going to sort of, which of these are going to come out on top or which is maybe most important, but, you know, they're going to come around sooner or later. Do you think something like fractional, like what we were talking about with Andy, would sort of be one of those types of things where you take something non-fungible, make it fungible again? Yeah. I mean, in the context of a single sort of shared canonical position that multiple users are pulling into, still that's, you know, just represented by a single NFT. I think, yeah, you could you could apply fractional to that NFT and then sort of use that as the like plug and play mechanic by which you're um, allocating fractional ownership. And that's, again, just the beauty of DeFi. Like, it's so cool that that even is a possibility of working. So yeah, that might be that might be awesome. Th those NFTs as they are, are those also like getting mixed up in the regular NFT markets? Like, is it starting to be like, <laughs> there's these new NFTs, let's put them in with the other NFTs and trade them around? Like it, what's happening? Like, are they, yeah, are they falling into that category too? They are and they actually, it's unfortunately a little confusing. I don't think everyone realizes that the NFT represents 
your liquidity in Uniswap. And so if you sell it, you no longer have the rights to that liquidity. Yeah. And so somebody ended up selling it, selling one of their liquidity provider NFTs on OpenSea uh, for much less than the capital was actually worth, worth. Not realizing, thinking it was just this like cool new thing to sell. Yeah, but but they have real value. And actually like the image and the description, that's all like secondary to the core purpose of them, which is to like to tokenize your ownership of this liquidity. And so that's so you can send it around and uh, see it in your wallets and, and all that good stuff that comes with that. Do you almost see like a world where people are like pooling together these NFTs, selling them in batches for the perceived value in the future, something like this? I mean, that in some ways, that's what owning a share in the index fund is. Yeah. Right? So there's an index fund that's allocating to the pools, and it also has a lockup, and it's exactly that's that. That's what it sounds like. This is old finance, right? Didn't that exist in, like, original finance? <laughs> the, the, difference, the difference is at least you anyone can use this, right? Like, I would say, like, it's not like anyone can go buy a VIX ETF, mm. right? Like, you can't really, right? You still need a third party who has a broker's license and blah, 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 right? Like, a lot of that stuff is removed. So, you know, I think the, the game aspect you should view as a positive because it kind of means more people can play the game than normal finance. But, you know, I think it inevitably will converge to the same thing. There's not really, there's no way around it. Mm. I know there was kind of the dream sold of not coming into that, but... What do you guys think about it? Are you, <laughs> where are you at on that? Yeah, I mean, I was, we were super worried for a while that, you know, V3 was going to be like too powerful for um, professional market makers, right? Like we, we really were, it was a very serious concern that we had, I would say an extended internal debate about um, Moody's smiling for those of you who aren't on the video call. Um, you know, because we all feel really passionately about this. And I think that especially given Flashbot's like totally meteoric rise to sort of prominence and, and all that, I, I think there's a really very real um, concern about, you know, the, the fundamental stability of blockchains in, you know, in, in a setting where massive amounts of value can be sort of extracted somewhat for free from, you know, quote unquote retail by quote unquote, you know, professional, in, in this case, not market makers necessarily, but, you know, just professional sort of miners or um, arbitrageurs or, or what have you. And so, you know, the jury is still out on, on all of this. And I think that they're, I'm pretty optimistic about, cryptography and like open source ethos and sort of like adversarial thinking, like getting us past the sort of threat that um, MEV and, and professionalization in market making poses to like passive investment or to just blockchain users as, as a whole. But it is definitely like a scary problem. And, you know, in theory, like in the limit, you know, Uniswap could just, Uniswap V3 could have just like devolved into this like weird sort of like in a Flashbots bundle, like everyone adds liquidity before a single trade, which is observed in the mempool, and then like withdraws it immediately after to like harvest all the fees. Like, you know, that hasn't happened, at least not yet. Um, and nor do we think it will. But like, in, in theory, that's a possibility, right? And so like, there are some scary like edge cases where, where things really do go down there off the rails pretty quickly. And um, I'm, not, I'm not sure it would converge to traditional finance, but it would certainly converge to like powerful players having extremely strong control over the system. And that I would argue that's like an aspect of traditional finance as well. So I think in, in my opinion, like the, the most important aspect of DeFi is that anyone who has skill and drive can come in and compete with those large players. And I think that's not going to go away, even if we give these players like more tooling, more control over their liquidity positions and how, how they trade. That, that bar might be a little bit higher for, for what is a competitive market maker, competitive trader. You kind of spoke about these edge cases or like, you know, extreme cases. And one I wondered about was, you know, you said you launched May 5th and there was a pretty intense drop, obviously maybe not as intense as, you know, March 2020, but that was, I guess, felt. What what did that look like internally? Was that something, w would that have been a possible like breaking point? Did you feel like the, the systems in place were, were stressed during that drop in price? Does that even have an impact? Yeah, you know, for my personal sanity, I really don't even look at the prices. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe this sounds bad, but it sort of just doesn't really register, I think, for us in a lot of ways. Like, and actually, there is this sort of counter cyclical aspect to Uniswap by which, like, when the prices are falling, people typically want to be in stables, right? Or um, they want to sort of hedge out their positions. So, yeah, I guess the question here is did it impact anything? It sounds like it didn't. Like, I'm thinking sort of from like the maker, like, Things getting there's nothing in Uniswap that automatically calls things. I guess. I mean, there's no leverage, right? Okay. So one of the advantages of a concentrated 
fee model versus like borrowing against an LP share to increase your share to get fees is that there is no kind of liquidation. Yeah. However, there is this kind of potentially worse loss due to lack of fee reinvestment and or, and or the price moving really far out, right? So that's the thing you might be more concerned about, which I think there are people who have been complaining a little bit about that, but that's because they didn't read the code. And, and they weren't able to think about it very much. <laughs> it's basically like people wanting to get their LP tokens or get their funds out. Well, they, they just felt like they missed out on a bunch of fees on like a mean reversion, right? Like if we, for instance, like, Take a coin like Comp, which like I think took like a 70% nuke and then went back up like 40%, right? Like people want the fees on the retrace, mm. but if they didn't adjust their liquidity, they lost out on those fees. And so that's usually where I think you've seen some, but that's just because people were just aped into things and didn't read the code. That's that would be my, but may, you know. Do your own research. It's supposed to be a buyer beware market in crypto. I mean, <laughs> I, I think there are some things we could do from a UX perspective to to address those things. Like uh, V three is a very different animal from V two for for the user, especially as a liquidity provider. So yeah, there's there's a ton of user education to be done there. It's it's a rabbit hole you could go down. It does definitely sound like you've just unleashed a much more powerful beast. I mean, to be honest, I have not tried it. I did try the the V two and was a liquidity provider for a short amount of time. So I do know what that looked like. I'm, I'm actually, after this interview, I'm super excited to go try it. Does the data, like, does everything Don't look- sell your NFT <laughs> on OpenSea. <laughs> don't sell the, don't sell the LP token. Got it. Okay, rule number one. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, there's a couple more levers, I'd say, in the interface. One thing that's interesting to think about and maybe a good starting place is, like, stable, stable asset your liquidity provision, because, you know, that's the real like home run uh, use case for V3, right? Is, um, you know, if DAI doesn't break its peg, like DAI USDC is literally free money, right? And so, you know, if you, if you want to put those assets in a very tight, narrow range around the price of one, um, you're almost certainly going to see some some volume there because, you know, there is this persistent interest in swapping between those two assets. So, you know, there, there are these differentiated use cases in V3, like stable, stable, like, you know, general, like sort of just DeFi token ETH. There's like socks. Gitcoin sacks like provision along a curve, you know, from a starting price up. Like there, there, you you can now sort of like in V3 sort of expand your definition of what it means to LP, and you can sort of pick subsets that you are more comfortable with. Um, if you don't feel like you are capable of like picking prices and in, um, in, the, in the optimal manner and, and making sure that your ranges are appropriately updated when when prices move, so th- there, there's options out there. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah, sounds like I'll try something here. As I understand it, recently there was a proposal or like some encouragement from Vitalik to have like the Oracle world live more in the Uniswap world. And I'm wondering, like, given that there's constant trades happening, like how do you actually do pricing? In the past, you weren't using external oracles, were you? No. So there's sort of two aspects here. I mean, the the, the use of the term Oracle is has been a bit a bit muddied, but so so for for pricing, V3 and you know V2 and V1 are fully algorithmic. Um, the prices are determined by the underlying liquidity that's being provided by end users. In V2 and V1, that's quite simple. It's just, you know, the asset value A and asset value B. In V3, of course, it's this aggregation across uh, potentially varying tick ranges that end up um, providing an aggregate quote for, for people looking to trade. And then there's this second layer where, you know, because of the incentives um, in, in Uniswap, uh, the current market price on Uniswap is typically tracking the price uh, off chain or, you know, the true price of, of, of assets quite closely. And so this is a valuable um, thing that we're getting literally for free. And so if we can figure out a way to expose this price to other applications, that's potentially valuable. And so there is this like internal mechanism by which Uniswap V3 pools offer historical prices to, you know, other people looking to um, use those prices to inform, you know, leverage liquidation, things like that. And then there's this third layer, which is, I think, what you're referencing, where Vitalik, in a post on the governance forum maybe a month or two ago, um, proposed that, yeah, Uniswap become a, I think, a dollar price uh, oracle was the proposal. Um, and I don't have too much of an opinion about that, but it would certainly stray from the fully algorithmic ethos of Uniswap, uh, the, the protocol, and it would it would instead rely more on sort of economic assumptions about the the market cap of the token and the behavior of token holders in a in an adversarial sort of voting or oracle updating system. And so I think the core protocol is like it's it's its own little bubble, and then this oracle proposal. I think would would build on top 
of sort of the, the quote unquote core competencies of Uniswap, namely like thinking, having thought very deeply about, um, you know, pricing and MEV and, or- and oracles and things like that, and then offer this service that would basically, I think, expose the, the a dollar price oracle um, using Uni as sort of a backstop for this system. And I don't know, you know, I don't know to what extent that's actually going to happen or, you know, if that's going to be us that builds that. Or, again, it's a fully unpermission. So like anyone could do this, right? Like we can't stop them, which is cool. But, you know, there's, um, I think there's a conversation to be had there. Mm. Because I, I mean, over the last two, three months, I actually did a series of, I think, six episodes all about L2s. And I know that two of them have publicly announced with you that Uniswap is going to be deploying on them. And that's Optimism and Arbitrum. And maybe some others are you're in talks with them. Now, my question here is, how do you deploy on main chain, mainnet, L2, and then another L2? Like, do you end up with liquidity pools on each one of these? Do they all have their own? Like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm quite confused about what this actually means when you say it's like deploying on this L2. Yeah, so it's it's actually not that different from deploying to a testnet. I mean, it's an EVM compatible chain, so everything is completely separate. That means the liquidity pools are separate, and so the liquidity is fragmented across L2 Optimism, L2 Arbitrum, and Layer One Ethereum. And so, for, in the case of Arbitrum, like we have this deploy script and we literally just pointed at the Arbitrum node and fired it off and it pretty much just worked. And Optimism requires a few more changes uh, just because they made some different architecture decisions. But uh, otherwise, it's it's a lot like deploying to a testnet. And then the big difference is that you can bridge these like mainnet assets over to these layer twos, whereas you know with a layer one testnet, you can't do that in a secure way at least. I wonder from the user's perspective, what do they look like? Like, does it, do they choose? That's a, that's a great question. That's like something we're sort of figuring out in, in terms of like UX. Um, I think early on, it will be mostly user driven, the, the choice between like which L2 they, they get. Um, and even like the experience of, you know, connecting to a layer two may not be quite as polished as, as it is if you just like go to Uniswap interface to, to connect to L1. So definitely a work in progress. And uh, I, I think it'll get a, a lot more difficult <laughs> to like create a, a really nice uh, polished UX as, as we deploy to more L2s. It's, it, it may become a little confusing and that's like a problem we're sort of working through today. Yeah, and I think one, one further question, maybe both from a mechanical perspective and also the user perspective is in the multi-L2 world, right, there's kind of a natural triangular arbitrage of like, I have WETH WBTC on Arbitrum, I have WETH WBTC on Optimism, I have WETH WBTC on Mainnet. And so in order for me to actually kind of synchronize prices, I'll either have to go through Mainnet or, you know, theoretically like a state channel relay like Connects or something. But like, for, for what it's worth, I think the Connects thing seems to be at least starting to make L2 relaying possible. But I guess my question is, from the end user's perspective, there's a couple problems here. One is, well, there's a lot of MEV that will be lost to if you have to do the leg through the main chain, right? Because because like front running the sequencer is now just way more valuable than any front running any individual transaction in a bundle. And then the second thing is kind of when you show a user a price, there's a sense in which the UX could actually go do the arbitrage and kind of provide the median price as the execution price, a little bit like what Robin Hood and Siddell's arrangement is in some ways. How do you view kind of this revenue sharing model that will now have to inevitably have to kind of come up given that the end user now has to like manage this? And it's a little bit kind of an extension of your previous question. There's a lot of lot of things there. So feel free to take whichever ones you feel most comfortable with. Yeah, I think the MEV thing is 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 very interesting, and the, the you know each additional L two introduces quadratically more layers of of MEV and, and arbitrage opportunities here. So I think it's it's something pretty serious to think about. Um, you know, it, it sort of comes down to whether we think Uniswap is like a piece of code that can just be deployed anywhere, or whether it's an experience, an app, you know, something that users can sort of bite their teeth into. Um, and I think that it's easy for us to think about it as a piece of code because, you know, we wrote this and um, we specifically set up the license so that like these exemptions could be made. We're like, we were very thoughtful and careful, you know, to the extent possible about, you know, about making sure that this thing was going to be portable. The license was, was 
you know, you could disagree with the sort of motivation, but you you can't, you know, it was, it was quite thoughtful. It was quite intentional. Like we did this for a reason. And I think that it's going to come down to a question of like how much our company wants to be involved or how much, you know, the Uniswap community wants to be involved in making Uniswap a cohesive experience across L2s and across networks. And, you know, to be frank, like we haven't deployed to any other chain other than Ethereum for a reason. And I think that's because, you know, there was, there were security concerns, there were community concerns, there was, you know, there was just a very real risk that, you know, Uniswap wouldn't be living up to its ethos to what we want Uniswap to be if we were deploying on these other chains. And um, I think that's no longer the case with L2 because these, these, you know, systems are inheriting a lot of these security guarantees that Ethereum provides you. And so I think that this is a really positive step forward. And ultimately, it's going to be a challenge and a test for these protocols to, you know, see if they can manage cross chain with like little like, you know, stapled together, glued on like connect style chains, um, or whether something like compound chain, right, which is which is another alternative, right? Like if you just bring compound into its own little universe and sort of talk to different um, people as, as or different chains as outlets, you know, that's another option as well. So I think really, I don't have an answer for you. But I think, my, you know, that's where our heads at really is like whether Uniswap just, you know, is the, its essence, um, you know, just a piece of code that can live anywhere. And, and um, you know, fragmentation is like this external concern that we don't have to worry about, or whether, whether we can think about products that span um, L2s and, and and sort of encompass the whole of Ethereum. And, you know, by Ethereum, I mean, like, not just L1, but, you know, these these L2 systems that are hopefully just as secure, if not more. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. I don't have an answer, but that's sort of like, that's just what comes to mind. And, and we'll, we'll see what happens um, as, as time goes on. I'll just add that my sort of early thinking on this is that it's hard to say that, you know, L1 Ethereum ETH is fungible with like Optimism ETH, especially because they have like different security guarantees. And then even with like these fast withdrawals, like fast exits, uh, there's going to be different amounts of liquidity, you know, based on the the confidence that these market makers have in, in the L2s and the different parameters that go into security and the architectures, which makes it feel to me like it's kind of unavoidable, uh, this choice that you give to the user, like they have to, you know, pick Arbitrum or Optimism. But um, I know that that's, uh, product people would probably hate me for saying that, but like... I mean, I don't know if that's true, because like, look at the staked ETH ETH pool, right? It's proven that people are willing to actually hold an LP share of um, the multiple types of ETH and use that as ETH, right? Like the curve ST ETH ETH pool is like, through all the crashes, it was the most low variance pool in all of all of Ethereum on Uniswap or Curve or Balancer or SushiSwap, whatever. So I think that's a testament to the fact that people are willing to actually hold the LP share of a bunch of different types of wrapped assets as the real as the real asset. And so then you get then you have a settlement asset that's effectively the LP share on, on layer one. So you I'm just saying there there are some weird things that might occur like that that you know Lido I think has kind of shown that. The, the thing about listening to all of your answers is, and I, I say this given that I, you know, I think I maybe a year ago was quite, quite negative on this ecosystem, but I, I kind of now I'm very positive is that the introduction of MEV auctions and kind of the fragmentation and doing, having to do all this stuff is very bullish for Polkadot because Polkadot already built that in, in their consensus. Like it actually looks very similar. Like everything we're talking about looks like what dots look like with crowdloans. I've never been more positive on, on, on Polkadot until this conversation. <laughs> Not what I was expecting for you, Tarun. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I didn't think it was. I didn't expect to be either. But the way, the way this evolved, it was like, it's like, whoa, like the compound app chain model mixed with kind of like this settlement in multiple ETHs is like kind of what Polkadot spent a lot of time trying to solve. And their auctions are very similar in, in some spirit to the MEV auctions for the sequencers. So... Yeah, I, I think it's actually kind of interesting to see these design spaces converge. And in, in the case of ETH, it's like, you know, Uniswap sort of enabled that. Uniswap plus MEV sort of kind of forced the hand towards that. But. I feel like this this is going to get retweeted by some polka dot shills out there. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wasn't I wasn't trying to, like, give a shill message. I'm just trying to point out that the polka dot auction plus many chains thing is kind of similar to, to MEV deter- auctions determining which ordering of L2s gets executed. Yeah. Okay, but bringing it back to Uniswap and the project, like people who want to get involved or want to start building maybe even some of these like strategy bots or I, I don't know, like how can they actually start participating in the ecosystem? What do you recommend they do? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think that it's important to understand 
um, that the things, you know, we've all been saying this whole podcast about, you know, being involved and community growth and all this stuff. Like, it's not just sort of abstract. It's actually quite, it's quite concrete. And so, you know, specifically the, the Uniswap grants program was created. It was the first governance proposal that passed um, about six months or so ago now. And it just funded um, a multi-sig, um, you know, comprised of some, some great team members, some community members, that is. And it's funding, you know, all kinds of programs that are contributing back to Uniswap and the Uniswap ecosystem. And so, you know, I don't know the numbers um, off the top of my head, but you can actually just go like it's Uniswap grants on Twitter. I think um, there's a whole like notion doc of all the projects that have been funded, um, you know, what they've, you know, the deliverables, like what they've produced so far. I um, mean, we've seen so many cool community projects come out of that in just just the early sort of few months that, that it's existed so far. And I think that, you know, we, we really want to make this treasury, you know, valuable to, you know, to Ethereum, to Uniswap. And I think that putting it to good use is, is actually quite, quite hard. And I think that this, this grants program is, is a great first step toward just like really being inclusive and engaging to developers. And as, you know, as Moody said, like maybe just, you know, the, the bar is just going to be higher to getting involved in DeFi. And, you know, we do want to be inclusive and, and stuff, but it, but it's also like, it's, it's really pretty novel that um, if you're interested and engaged, you can get access to like, you know, funding and, and, you know, start working on these ideas and like be very, very close to the metal. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's something that to, to look out for if you want to get involved. And, you know, really it's just about enthusiasm and time too. Like if you are willing to like put in the hours, like we're not, we're not at the stage yet where like you need to be a rocket scientist to, to get involved. You can, you can hop in and make an impact. Very nice. Cool. Want to say thank you to both of you for coming on the show, sharing with us the journey through V1, V2, V3 of Uniswap and uh, definitely like giving me a chance to dig in, ask you some questions I've had for a while. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Anna. This was great. And thanks, Arun. Thanks for having us. Cool. Thank you to the podcast producer, Andre, podcast editor, Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. <clears throat> Let me say that again. Thanks for listening. And actually, I have to repeat something because I said I did eight episodes on L2s, but I only did six. I like went and counted right after I said it and I'm like, wrong. So I'm just going to, I'm going to record this. You. So one question I have is about this idea of Uniswap on L2s. Because I, I mean, over the last two, three months, I actually did a series of, I think, six episodes all about L2 systems, L2s. And I know that there's two of those L2s, Arbitrum and Optimism, who've publicly, publicly, who've publicly announced that um, Uniswap will actually be deployed on them. Now, what I don't really understand is like, what does that mean to have Uniswap on them? Is it one sort of joint Uniswap that runs on them or is it like separated? Yeah. What, what does that look like? 